Well, let's go ahead and get started here since we've got, um, you want one? Since uh, we church ran late there, so um, the Lord be with you. Let's pray. Hey, welcome. Come on in. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the meaning of Advent and the reminder of your first coming and the anticipation of your second. Um, be with us as we um, remember um, your birth and life. In Christ's name, amen. So, so I was just thinking along the lines of uh, Advent theme, you know, we've got... Um, I've talked to people before who have been very suspicious of the Christian notion of a virgin birth. And I don't know if you've come across this before or not, but, um, you know, the Christmas story itself, feeling sentimental to people, they go, oh, isn't that kind of quaint and cute? You have this family who doesn't have a place to stay, so they stay in a barn, and we remember that every year. But they don't necessarily think this was a historical event, that this actually happened. They think of it more like it was a fairy tale or something, or a, or a sweet um, a sweet idea. And so I just wanted us to look for um, a few minutes at um, not just the narrative of the virgin birth, but obviously some of the implications uh, that God was made incarnate and came among us. So Matthew chapter 1 is one place we will be looking. And then you can also look in Luke's gospel, chapters 1 and 2, a little bit. Um, so we'll, we'll kind of be back and forth between those. Now this is, a, um, this is and was a, a fairly scandalous story. I mean, you had an unwed mother... Um, you had the claim that this baby was so significant that the salvation of the human race was wrapped up in it. And, and so, and then obviously in the theological realm, you have Paul's commentary um, in some of his letters talking about from the beginning of time, before the foundations of the world. Um, in fact, all the world was created through him. Um, and then he became incarnate through the Virgin Mary. And so, um, so it is a wonderful story, but also raises a lot of questions for us. So in Matthew 1, this might feel familiar to you, but I think it's helpful for us to read through it again, to be reminded. So um, on page 687, we have the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. It's the beginning of the New Testament. And so would somebody volunteer to read verses 18 to 25 that short section there. Thank you. Matthew, Matthew 1, 18. Uh, it's on page 687. No, Matthew 1, verse 18. I'm sorry. Absolutely. Jesus Christ came to be born. His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they came to live together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. How far? Oh, oh, to verse 25. Her husband Joseph, being a man of honor and wanting to spare her publicly, decided to divorce her informally. He had made up his mind to do this 
when the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because she has conceived, because, because she has conceived what is in her womb by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you must name him Jesus, because he is the one who is to save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill the words spoken by the Lord through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, a name which means God is with us. When Joseph woke, woke up and did what the angel of the Lord had told him to do, he took his wife to his home, and though he had not had intercourse with her, she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Thank you. Yeah, so, you know, stories sometimes can feel so familiar. The power and the shock of them doesn't come off. But if this was the first time you were to hear this narrative, um, I think it, it, it would raise a lot of questions for you. Um, you know, so, so Mary is engaged to be married. But she is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And, and if you're not in Christian culture, you're probably just asking yourself, well, what, is, <laughs> what is that? What is going on here? And um, this, is, um, this is a scandalous story in so many ways. This is saying God has entered and broken into creation, taken on flesh, taken on form in the incarnation, that he was made incarnate. And I think of actually kind of like... Um, for some reason, it makes me think of chili. I don't know why, but in, in Spanish class, we would learn that chili was, we, we would talk about chili con carne, chili with meat. And when I think of incarnate, I think of in meat, you know, like God, it's God with, we talked, when I used to do young life ministry with high schoolers, we would say Jesus was God with skin on, you know, like as a, in a physical form. Um, he, he came and he took on flesh, you know, uh, and, I, you know, I know that's a silly way to think about it, but when I think of incarnate, that's what I think of. Um, in me, uh, God, the eternal God who has no beginning and no end, who, who is spirit, but who spoke and created all that is. He chose to be, take on human form. I mean, that is, that is simply amazing. And, you know, to the Greek mind who knew of the, you know, their stories of Zeus and the gods, th those gods were, you know, th they were kind of a mockery in some ways of the biblical god. You know, they all had just uh, deep deficiencies of character. You know, they were always fighting and quibbling and um, trying to exercise their power. But the Greeks in no way really saw them as, like, incarnate in this sense. You know, they were, they were kind of a mythological creation story. Uh, this, this is written as a narrative, as a, as a historical narrative for us to be reminded this happened in history. Joseph and Mary were a real couple. Um, Jesus was a real man who lived and tread this earth. And um, so, so, so to a skeptical mind hearing this and reading this, it feels far-fetched that this would happen, but I, I do like some of the commentary that happens in Luke 1. You're welcome to flip over, um, but I'll also just pick out a couple verses and read them for us. Um, 
Mary, the, Luke records a little bit more that happens before what Matthew starts with and talks about how Gabriel the angel comes to her. Um, in Luke 1:26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of, in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled um, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, and this is some of the same language we read in Matthew, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You will, should call his name Jesus, and he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary's response to this is, well, how is this going to happen? I'm, I'm a virgin. You know, like, this is interesting news, but I haven't known a man. You know, your version says, you know, I hadn't had sex, sexual intercourse, you know, with a man. I mean, that, your, your version was very explicit. Um, but the angel says to her in Luke 1.35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. And, and he says in verse 37, For nothing will be impossible with God. And I think that's where there is a true measure of faith that the Christian tradition holds that we as a community are remembering together when we're reading scripture in a corporate setting or in a Bible study or even privately. We're joining in a um, being reminded that nothing's impossible with God, that God has been writing a glorious story. Um, and and it's through the Holy Spirit that the, that the power of the Most High will overshadow Mary. And that language reminds somebody who's familiar with the book of Genesis of how at creation, the Spirit hovered over the waters. It almost overshadowed over the waters. In that same way, as the, as the God made and spoke creation into existence, it's as though he is, he is performing that same creative act and um, in Mary, creating um, this miraculous uh, conception. And flipping back to Matthew, he does he quotes the prophet Isaiah, and, and it's one we read every Advent season leading up to Christmas from Isaiah 7. Um, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Um, this is, you know, the foreshadowing that happens in the Old Testament, the New Testament writers take as, here's what, how this was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Because we believe as Christians that all of the Old Testament was pointing to, and tra the trajectory was about Jesus and how he would fulfill all the types um, and shadows that are in the Old Testament will come to a, a fuller meaning and completion in Jesus. And so, please. Do you know, like, you know how typically in the Jewish culture, a lot of them were looking and waiting for a lot of these, like, messianic prophecies to be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Was that one that they were aware of or not? Because I feel like you don't really, they don't really address it as, like, yeah. when they were, like, wait, I mean, she obviously seems very, like, She's surprised. surprised by That's right. Yeah, yeah, that, that was that not. I thought it was more common knowledge that, that there was a birth, that this was going to happen. 
Yeah, no, I mean, th- there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that the Jews were anticipating a virgin birth. Um, um, th- you know, the the literature is fairly scant on that from the, the time leading up to Jesus. Um, but what you have is New Testament writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit making references to things in their own prophecies that... You know, and ultimately, this is all about spiritual blindness. You know, I mean, um, you know, G- Jesus even quotes um, Isaiah in his ministry, saying, "You know, you're, you're going to speak, and they're not going to understand. That they are not going to hear." You know, there there is a sense in which God told them, God's His people, but they didn't, they weren't able to really comprehend and understand it. And and it's easy for us on this side of Calvary, of the, the birth and life and resurrection of Jesus, to look back and go, oh, I see that in the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, but e- even there, we need the aid of the inspired writers of the New Testament to show us and tell us um, about those things because it, it wasn't necessarily patently obvious. Now, what, what you were right, though, what the Old Testament, what, what they were um, referencing from the Old Testament, there were groups that, were really anticipating a warrior king. They, they, I mean, it was, it's about the line of David, and they were sitting under the thumb of oppression of Roman rule, and they had been through exile and restoration, and they were back in the land, and there had been a 400-year darkness that they hadn't heard a prophetic word in 400 years. And so it, it was as though they were wondering, where is... God. <laughs> is God going to keep his promises to us? That he said there will, be, there will always be one who sits on the throne of David, yet they were under the Roman rule. And so, yes. In, in, in Luke, what we just read a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. in chapter 1, where the birth of Jesus, the, he will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. Mm-hmm. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. That's my question. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember? That's a reference to King David. That's a I reference to. But I mean, how can he be the son of David and also the son of God? Well, yes, and it's because, and this is the beauty, this is really the crux of the matter, isn't it? This is when we talk about God made flesh, he is fully God and fully man. And so the, the gospel writers are going through uh, when they give the lineage, the human ancestry of Jesus, they're going to painful lengths to show Jesus was one of us. He really was born of the seed of a woman, which actually fulfills a prophecy from Genesis 3.15. It's the first announcement of salvation and deliverance in all of Scripture. It's after Adam and Eve, they sinned against God, but God gives them a gracious word when he curses the serpent. He says the seed of the woman will trample on the head of the serpent. And so and it's interesting that he said the seed of the woman. He doesn't say seed of the man. And lineage was always traced in the ancient Near East through the male line. But it's the seed of the woman. So Jesus well, was Mary the was seed. The of David, she was. was. I thought it was when we were long last week. It was Joseph. Joseph, yes. Joseph. Through both. I think both of them were. Yes, yeah. both of them. But you're right. Last week, Stephen gave the um, gave Matthew's genealogy. The, the genealogy of Matthew is is Joseph. It is Joseph's line. Mary. 
in Luke. Yeah, that's right. And, and so it, they go through a painful explanation to show, no, Jesus is actually the true heir of David's throne. And, and Paul says in Galatians 4, at just the right time, God sent a man born of a woman born under the law. Um, it was, it's important that the representative for all of mankind be human because he had to make a full atonement for all our sins. So he lived what we profess, um, a perfect life, a life free from sin. Um, he was the perfect sacrifice. He was the unblemished sheep from the Old Testament, or unblemished goat from the Old Testament, who then was slaughtered, whose blood satisfies uh, the wrath and judgment of God on behalf of those he represents. And so Jesus is called the second Adam in Scripture because he fulfills in every perfect way the things that the first Adam and all of Adam's race, which is you and me and everybody else, who has inherited original sin. The teaching of Scripture is that Jesus, by his perfect life and death, has satisfied God's judgment on sin, the, the, the judgment that you and I have incurred by being sinners, by being the line of Adam. And so, uh, does that make sense, Frank? It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it, well, David's throne was a big deal. And so, to get back to Lauren's question about, they were, they were wondering is this king going to be a warrior king who's going to get us out from underneath the thumb of the Romans? And so um, that's why even Jesus' followers had swords. Remember Peter cut off you know, one of the soldiers' ears and Jesus put, heals it, places it right back on when Jesus is arrested. They were thinking there was going to be some kind of overthrow that was going to happen. That was in their collective consciousness that somehow we will be free from Roman rule. That was part of their deliverance that they were anticipating. Having a king, because their vision of the kingdom was the prosperous kingdom under David and Solomon, where they were expanding their borders, where their wealth was accumulating. Um, and so that's why you have prophecies in the Old Testament that the nations will come to Jerusalem. The nations will come to the temple of God and offer their thanks and give sacrifice because Jerusalem was the center of the universe because that's where God's temple was. And where God's temple is, is where God's presence is. And so David began the work on the temple and Solomon carried it out. So all the, all the anticipation at the time of Jesus was about one day our, the glorious kingdom will be restored. God will be gracious to us once again. Uh, we know that we have sinned and we've gone off into exile, but now we are back in the land he's given us. And they had the temple in Jesus' day. Um, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, which did actually happen in 70 A.D., and they haven't rebuilt it since. Um, sorry, that got a little bit off um, track, but no, I appreciate that question. Can I ask them, where is Mary's lineage? Well, the, the, some people think Luke's genealogy is Mary's genealogy because when, when, it, when he gives it, Luke gives it in chapter 3 of his gospel, um, right before the... Um, right after the, his baptism and right before his temptation. And, or, or did I say the, the other way around? Yeah. And so um, 
he starts, it says, you know, he was the son, it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Healy. Well, Healy wasn't Joseph's father. So many people think Healy was Mary's father. So it was mentioning his father-in-law. And there's a lot of actual jumps and things like that throughout the lineage, both in Matthew and Luke, that, that are like that. Do you think it's important if Jesus was the son of David? Would yes. Correct. Oh yes, it, it was definitely that was a fulfillment of prophecy that f- forever God would have an heir on David's throne. That that was very important. Um, yes, Matthew's lineage starts with Abraham. Luke starts with Adam. Goes all the way back to Adam, the son of God. That's what he calls him. But you're right. Yes, it does start. And the promise of God to His people starts with Abraham. Yes. Yes, from you will come a blessing to all the nations. Yeah, you will you will have as many descendants as the sand on the seashore, that sort of thing. Yes. That's I know. The children's song is that Father Abraham? Yeah. We can sing it together if you like. Um but um, Matthew gives a real great description of the work Jesus came to do just in giving his name and in giving um giving the purpose for which he came. He says in verse 21 that Mary will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so that word Jesus, it is the Greek form, Yesu, is Greek for uh, Yeshu, which is short for Yeshua. In English, Joshua. Um, So Joshua in the Old Testament, his name means the Lord saves, God saves. Yahweh saves. Jesus' name means the same thing. God saves. Um, it's the Hellenized version of it. It's, it's in Greek. And so that's, that's why we use the name Jesus. And uh, it really, I love that because it's, that's the primal cry of our world. It's the primal cry of our heart. When you're in trouble, when you're in desperation, when, <laughs> when you think all else is lost, God help me. Help you know, I, I think that's just a beautiful, it taps into our innate desire to knowing that we don't have it together, that we need to be rescued by somebody outside of us. And that's why the incarnation is so powerful and so important. God did for us what we could never be able to fully do for ourselves. No matter how much we work, no matter how hard we fight or how, how, how hard we climb, uh, we are always um, going to be in this place of needing help. And God gave us the ultimate help when he sent Jesus. And that's the answer. Um, and he's going, he saves us from our sins. And he does it by becoming Emmanuel, God with us. He dwells in human form among us. And that is a great mystery and a great surprise and wonder for us. Um, which, is, which is why I just felt like we should look at it for a few minutes because it has um, so many applications for us. Um, one is Jesus, in so many ways, is our older brother, our elder brother, the one who has gone before us um, because of his humanity. The author of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. Um, Jesus has faced every situation that you and I will ever walk into. He can identify with it. He can identify with your humanity, which means he can identify with your 
temptations, with the places where you're tempted to believe God's not good enough or big enough, or your temptation to believe that you're not worth saving, (laughs) or that God doesn't love you, or that somebody finds you unlovely. When you're tempted to believe those things, you need to remember Jesus, too, has undergone temptation. Not just at the, you know, when Satan tempted him in the desert, but all along he had the temptation to avoid the cross, to avoid the pain and agony of being separated from his father, who he'd been connected to eternally from the beginning. Um, But he gave all that up for you and me. And his humanity um, embodies that. Uh, There's several places in the Gospels where it says Jesus looked at the woman or the man and had compassion on him or her. Jesus welled up with compassion because he knows the frailty of the human existence because he came not as a powerful warrior king but as a vulnerable baby. He knows what it is to, um, to be in a world that is sad and suffering and broken um, because he can identify with it. Remember when Jesus goes to his friend Lazarus' tomb? The, one of the best verses in the whole Bible, and it's the shortest. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He gets down in the dirt with us. He is with us uh, when you think you're at the end of your rope. He doesn't abandon you or forsake you. And that's why I think it's beautiful that he's called Emmanuel, God with us, because at the very end of his ministry, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, he gives the Great Commission, go into all the world, baptizing and making disciples in my name. And he says, for I am with you always, even till the end of the age. God is with us and he is always with us. That is his promise. And so we anticipate during Advent, we remember, we look back to remember the hope of God coming, breaking into history, because he's coming again. Jesus is coming again. This is a time of great anticipation and hope for us. What were you going to say? I was going to say one of the things that, um, that Paul Zoll said many years ago that, I, that really resonated with me was that we're all sinners. And, and that's just the human condition. Mm-hmm. We're all sinners. But it's a whole lot easier for me to believe that you're going to be forgiven for your mm-hmm. sins for they are. Mm-hmm. It's for me to believe that I'm going to be forgiven for mine. I mean, that's, yep. you know, that's just one of those things that, yeah, this good news is for everybody else. God so loved the world that he gave us, but, man, I'm so I'm terrible. I know myself. I know my stuff it is not pretty. Um, it, yeah, so we do that. And I think that's where it's helpful to put your name in there in John 3, 16. You know? For God so loved Adam <laughs> that he gave his only son. I mean, that's the beauty of it. Romans 5, 8, um, for, you know... God sent his son at just the right time when we were still sinners. Christ died for us. When, while we were still sinners. He didn't, he didn't wait for us to make ourselves look good. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He enters into the mess. And he came through in a very bloody and very human way. I mean, he came through a birth. Through a birth canal, you know. I mean, that's, he is not unacquainted with the mess of what it means to be human. And I think that is just part of the wonder and amazement to me of the Incarnation and why he's worthy of worship. Um, As difficult as it can be to believe that he was conceived um, in a virgin. um, But that's unsettling. 
It is. But isn't the paradox? The paradox is if we could understand it, he wouldn't have been the son of God. Mm. We don't understand it, and you know all things. You know all the things that the interface mm. between Jesus and the Trinity and our earthly life is unsettling. I mean, all. That's right. Um, it's unsettling. Yeah. So the one side we expect to understand it in an earthly way, and we can't. At least I'm speaking personally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then, yeah. I think you're speaking for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, and when you talk to people who are unbelievers, you and, and they say, well, you know, it's mumbo jumbo. Well, it's got to sound kind of, mm-hmm. I, I don't even, you know, I mm-hmm. don't, it's got to sound unbelievable mm-hmm. or it wouldn't be true. Is that, it's got to yeah. sound like, in minus one yeah. in unbelievability. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be true. Yeah. It's, a, it's a paradox. You know, have you seen Quentin Tarantino has some quote about it, kind of what you're saying, if it sounds too good to be true, he says it ain't. Really? <laughs> Which is what you wouldn't expect from him. You know, yeah. he's not like necessarily being Quentin opposed. Oh, <laughs> he thinks oh, it, but I yeah. thought, wow, that's kind of, I think that's kind of true. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I like your word unsettling because I, I think that's what the gospel should be. It should arrest us. Mm-hmm. It should unnerve us. Yeah. It, it's almost like it should take our breath away for a second and go, he loves us that much, you know? Like this is really, it, it becomes more immediate, I think, to people. Now, I think people tr- tend to do this with it because they're like, well, I'll believe it when I see it. Or, man, you know, I asked God for help one time and he didn't help me, you know? Or I'm still, I think it usually goes back to somebody's story. And Jesus, I guess, died for that, right? Yeah. Because he wasn't what they thought he would look like. He wasn't a warrior king. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's just part of the wonder of it is, you know, if you can believe in a God that can create out of nothing, ex nihilo, then, you, you know, surely he can... I mean, the first man he made with no earthly parents, why does he need two earthly parents for his own son to be begotten? And obviously it goes back to nothing's impossible with God. As as somebody said, if if God's able to do all those things, why would he be limited in this regard? Um, But it is, but that's I think where where the proof of the pudding, so to speak, is, is we actually have to trust, we have to risk. We have to, you know, just like I'm placing my faith that this chair is going to hold me, there, there's always going to be an element of I'm going to trust that this story is true because it's very connected to all these other parts of the story, you know. It, I mean, we're talking about a man, a dead man that was raised from the dead and was walking around and then ascended into heaven in front of his disciples. Yeah, I mean, you're right. That's, that's unbelievable. That's unsettling. And so... <laughs> The whole nature, I think, of the Christian story is um, it feels too, cra- too crazy to be true, which actually might make it that much more likely to be true. That's what I like to read about from scientists who, who study biochemistry and things of that nature, um, who would study you know, the processes of you know, birth. And from a science perspective, why 
why they believe in Christianity because if they believe in the virgin birth, it is possible. What mm. got them to become Christians outside of you know not understanding how that happened in the um, incarnations? Yeah, so think yeah, it's a great mystery. There, how they came to faith mm. is kind of interesting because for them to study this and not, know it's not possible on an earthly mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah. How they what things brought them to their faith. It's interesting to me. Yeah. And I think the the cosmic scientists. Yeah. That, you know that. You know there's some there's always been some discussion there because I've talked with Mark and Led about it. And lots mm-hmm. of them have written about you know the multiverse theory and you know who's to say that doesn't satisfy heaven or satisfy mm-hmm. you know this infinite construct. Yeah, yeah. There's there's so much to <laughs> delve into and explore, you know, and so much of what we're talking about are not provable things, you know. Even history is a a quirky, you know, science <laughs> if you want to call it that. The science of discovering what is actually true in history um, is, um, yeah, much like the physical world. You can only know so much. You can only prove so much with a scientific theory, because um, you can't always reproduce, you know, things in uh, according to a scientific method, and so so many things are going to remain unprovable, and that's where, um, yeah, the crux is where are we going to place our faith and our trust, and, and it's a call. I have a question for you. There's yeah. been a lot of um, you know stories trying to prove, or like a lot of people writing about um, the resurrection, mm-hmm. trying to prove, you know, that it actually happened. Historically, yeah. Is there as much literature out there about the incarnation? Um, yeah, I mean, for the most part, I mean, it's a lot of theologians and um, folks like that. It's um, trying to think what I would commend to somebody if you're wanting to read more on it. Um, really. Trying to uh, let me get back to you on that. I'm not sure what I would recommend. I mean, yeah, on the resurrection, people like N.T. Wright, he's written the, the resurrection of the Son of God. I mean, it's really a yeah. solid and respectable um, of, um, doctrine. Um, there is a lot. There is a lot in antiquity on it. Augustine, Aquinas. Um, so let me dig around, and I could certainly give you some places to go for that resource-wise. Well, thanks, y'all. I appreciate being with you again. And uh, well, uh, yeah, next week I wanted to talk a little bit more about the king idea and um, how Jesus wasn't the kind of king that had a throne. So that's what we'll look at next week. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. <laughs>